the subject taboo, uh, and we did the the first the first uh, week we covered uh, the subject of hell, actually, which is not often uh, spoken about in in church circles these days. Probably out of fear, I'm not sure what, uh, but we talked about that. If you missed that message, it's online. You can go to our website and click connect. And you'll, you'll be able to hear that message. And tonight we're going to talk about the subject of science. Science. Because in many church circles, this is avoided. Because we know that when we start talking about science, the basic message of culture is that science has disproved the Bible. That, uh, you know, if you want to go down that route... You're going to have to deal with the reality, at least we're taught, that science has disproved the Bible, and usually it's in two key areas, two key areas. One is origins, and the other is miracles. Origins is usually the one that's talked about the most, uh, and this is a major, major challenge. If you are trying to share your faith with a non-Christian friend, or perhaps you're in this room tonight and you're sort of like, well, I come to this church, but I don't really know if I'm a believer and I have a ton of questions. And some of those questions relate to the subject of science, in particular, origins and miracles. Uh, Because the view, the prevailing view out there is that these things have been disproven uh, by science and by the the modern age and all of that. And anybody who truly believes uh, the Bible's accounts of the miraculous or of creation and these kinds of things, well, they're sort of like people who believe that the earth is flat. uh, And they believe in myths and fairy tales and that's all well and good as long as they don't harm anyone right? So this is a real issue. And for a lot of people, especially young people, and I'm happy to see that there are young people in the room tonight, especially for young people who grow up in church, who your parents took you to church all your life, and you start growing even in grade school. Even in grade school, you can, you can um, intuit that you're being taught a message that usually is totally different from the things that you're being taught in church. And some churches even teach some really strange things that confuse young people all the more. Some, some churches say there's no such thing as dinosaurs. And then they, the kid goes to school and they see these fossils and they go on a field trip and see fossils of dinosaurs. Okay, can I just tell you there is a such thing as dinosaurs? They all are from Jurassic Park. Go and see the movie series. You'll need to learn anything. I'm just kidding. But there's a such thing as dinosaurs, all right? But the information that sometimes kids are being taught, one thing from the church, one thing from the school, and over time, what happens if young people don't develop convictions about the things that they believe by the time they're teenagers, by the time they're university students, bye-bye church, bye-bye God, it's all, it's all hocus pocus. And so the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with the question of where did we come from? Are we really created? Are we not created? Are miracles really real? Those are foundational questions and major stumbling blocks to people who want to believe but know something about science. Because they say, well, well, what am I supposed to do with this in terms of the Bible? And so uh, rather than me, you know, kind of pontificate about the views that are out there, I want to start by getting right into it and dealing with the subject of evolution. 
Because this is a big, big deal in church circles, and the, the, it's so controversial, and there's so much misinformation out there. So I want to start by dealing with that subject tonight. And again, rather than me give you a long, boring lecture, I want you to hear from a man by the name of Stephen Hawking. Okay, this isn't going to be his actual voice, but he put out what I thought was an excellent video. Uh, Stephen Hawking is a very, fair, very famous man, regarded as a genius really. In, in academia, he is a, a theoretical physicist, a cosmologist, amongst other things, wrote a book called A Brief History of Time, very, very famous book. And he, in this video, will explain the origin of life on planet Earth as a, 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 a starting point for how life could form on other planets, okay? And he gives a very, very straight, very simple uh, explanation of evolution as the source of life on planet Earth while he does this, all right? So I want you to watch this video, and then I'm going to talk about it for a few minutes and, you know, help you see a few things that he's that he's saying and what we mean when we speak of of evolution okay i think it's light switch number two and if you can go ahead with that video just the information we need is here at home for the simple reason that home harbors the only known examples of life The laws of physics appear to be the same everywhere. So it follows that the laws of life should be universal too, even if the detail is different. We can use life on Earth as a kind of alien hunter's handbook, a field guide to what life actually is and how it works, no matter where it occurs. Chapter one in our particular case takes us back 4.5 billion years to when the Earth was really quite young. Exactly what triggered life here is still a mystery, but there are several theories. The most common one is that life began purely by accident in pools of primordial soup full of chemicals called amino acids. These molecules would have collided at random for millions of years until the perfect combination just happened. The ultimate lucky break that started the chain of life. It is extremely unlikely that life could spontaneously create itself. But I don't think that's a problem with this theory. It's like winning a lottery, although the odds are astronomical. Most weeks, someone hits the jackpot. But there is another intriguing idea called panspermia, which says that life could have originated somewhere else and have been spread from planet to planet by asteroids. It seems possible 
that lumps of rock could carry frozen organisms inside them. Organisms able to withstand extremes of temperature and the vacuum of space. If so, asteroids could even now be transporting life to other worlds. Regardless of which theory is right, once life begins, the next chapter starts. And that's all about survival. Survival links you, me, and E.T. And it generates rules all of its own. Survival demands a source of energy, what we call food or else it would grind to a halt. Once nourished, life can then copy itself to protect against the death of any one individual. Ultimately, that leads to evolution. Evolution that would happen even on alien worlds. Producing, in some instances, animals that I think we would recognize as being alive even if they look a bit strange. So the next step on our alien hunt is to find a place or places where organisms might find food replicate and evolve and as far as we know that requires one thing okay good the one thing being water of course so I don't know if you got the gist of what he's trying to say there but what he's saying is that we can theorize uh, that life could evolve on other planets the same way that it evolved on planet Earth. But I want to slow the, the tape down a little bit and look at some of the things uh, that he has said and understand some things uh, about evolution just, just uh, from a church setting, okay? Uh, first of all, um, what, uh, what Hawking said in terms of the origin of life there, and this is, this is commonly said, uh, and, I, and I'll quote it for you, exactly what triggered life here is still a mystery, and it still is. Uh, you can't go back, supposedly, these billions of years and know what triggered it. And no evolutionist who is worth their weight is going to say that they know. They will say exactly what triggered life here is still a mystery. And then he goes on to say the most common theory is that life began by accident in pools of primordial soup. This is what you're learning in grade school, full of chemicals called amino acids. 
And of course, we don't know where the amino acids came from either. And then he says, until the perfect combination just happened. So those amino acids combined randomly and just by chance, you have the formation of the first protein which is a very, very complex thing. Uh, and then he goes on to say it is extremely unlikely. This, again, is Stephen Hawking. It is extremely unlikely that life could spontaneously create itself. It's like winning a lottery. Though the odds are astronomical, most weeks someone hits the jackpot. Now, I want, how many of you, well, you probably won't answer this, but how many of you have ever seen people play the lottery before? I'll put it that way, okay? I watch people play the lottery sometimes, and I'm amazed and amused when I watch people play the lottery because, you know, people all of a sudden, when they play that lottery, they get very religious, and you see them pick those numbers, and I mean, they pray, they get the rosary out, they make the sign of the cross, they say om, they do whatever can work to get the mojo for the numbers, if you know what I'm saying. And it's amazing how a culture that boasts that it has no faith all of a sudden has great faith when it comes to trying to pick the six numbers out of the 649. When you pick those numbers out of the 649, what are you doing? you got millions of people who are trying to pick those six numbers that will match the randomly chosen six numbers that happen when they put them all in that ball and they spin that ball. So you're trying to match those two things. Some of you are looking at me, you're saying, is the lottery right or wrong? Okay, you'll find out about that when I talk about money in our Taboo series. But I use it as an example tonight, because really, when you talk about the origin of life, first of all, no one knows where these amino acids came from, which are extremely complex molecules. And then they have to combine. And they have to combine in such a way to produce a protein that's going to live. And that is like winning the lottery, but even worse. Because in the lottery, you got to pick six numbers that match a random six numbers. There's no sense or meaning to those numbers. But when you talk about developing a protein, a protein that's going to live and survive and be able somehow to multiply itself, you're talking about picking a lottery where you can read the, the words and the numbers in a sequence that makes sense. This is winning the lottery on steroids. And that has to have happened in order to produce this first protein uh, in this pool, this supposed pool of primordial soup, you know, billions of years ago. That's essentially the leading theory as to where it all started. And then what has to happen, and again, this is not an exaggeration or anything. This is, this is essentially what is taught. What has to happen is that protein has to be able to multiply. And as it multiplies, natural selection will begin to do its work. And what that means is that the, 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 the protein will be selected by nature that can live. And the one that can live and the one that can survive will keep on multiplying itself. And the one that can't will die. 
And eventually that protein will, will itself die and it will have multiplied to a point where there's actually new genetic information and new species of proteins are actually formed that don't multiply with themselves because they're two different species of proteins and it's like a tree with branches on it. But for that to happen, you have to win the lottery again. Because you have to produce new genetic material every time. And eventually you get all of life itself through this process of multiplication and natural selection. So you got to win the lottery. Now that's the prevailing theory. Uh, it's not, I, I need to tell you, uh, I'll call, I call it the evolution of evolution. Okay, evolution is not an evil word. Uh, natural selection is not an evil term. You all sitting in this room and me standing here, we are all evidence of natural selection. It happens all the time. And what natural selection simply means is that nature selects within uh, uh, the elbow room of the gene pool of a given species. You all look different, yes? You all look different. I don't see little cookie cutters, little robots. There's a variety, there's an elbow room, you could call it, within the gene pool and certain geographical locations. Nature selects one way, certain ones another way. Sometimes people are not the product of natural selection, but artificial selection. You know, if a person is a, an in vitro fertilization baby, well, that's kind of uh, uh, artificial selection. But the point is, we see it all the time. There's always this elbow room within the gene pool of a given species. How many of you have ever been sick before and you have to take antibiotics? How many of you are sick now and you're on antibiotics? Well, you know what happens when you don't finish your antibiotics? The bacteria that's in there, it, it may live. It may live on. You may not have wiped it out with those antibiotics. And what that bacteria does, it is multiplying and it's replicating itself. And ooh, a strain of it can survive that antibiotic. So the next time you get sick of the same thing, you take that antibiotic, it ain't going to work. Because there's a strain that survived. Now here's the thing. It's still an antibiotic. It's still a bacteria. It's still a bacteria and you're still a human. Okay, it's a very, very different thing to observe natural selection in, in real time and space as we can observe it even in this room and even looking at things like bacteria and then saying that it will actually produce new genetic information to the point where you've got two brand new species. So Christians sometimes argue this way and they say, well... Evolution says we came from apes. How come the apes are still here? This is a common, common defense that Christians often use. It is not what evolution teaches. Evolution does not teach that we come from apes. It teaches that apes and humans come from a common ancestor. And that common ancestor died out and became extinct. And you got two species that came from that common ancestor, humans and, and primates uh, and apes. It doesn't say that we came from apes specifically, okay? That's why apes are still around, at least the evolutionists argue. I know you're all looking at me strange and saying, you sound like an evolutionist. No, I'm not an evolutionist at all. But it needs to be explained correctly 
Because I'm telling you, you can't get into an intelligent conversation with an evolutionist if you don't know what the thing teaches. And that is more what it teaches. These are not bad words. You can see evolution all over the place and natural selection all, all over the place. How many of you drive an electric car or have driven in an electric car? Okay. How many of you still drive a car that runs on gas? Okay. Guess what? It's still a car. <laughs> whether it's running on a battery or whether it's running on gas, it's still a car. It's, a, it's an evolution of sorts. You've got some playroom within the car species. I mean, we see it all over the place. What we don't see, however, is this idea that, that the lottery is played and you've got a species that while it's reproducing itself, it mutates to a point where you actually have two different species that it's a common ancestor that produced those two species and it dies out. Now the evolutionist teaching is all of these things we can find in the fossil record. This is what the fossil record has and they have all kinds of examples. One of them is called Archaeopteryx, uh, which is this supposed transitional form between a bird and a reptile. And of course it depends on who you talk to. You talk to some people and they say, no, it's not a common ancestor at all. It's fully reptile or some say it's fully bird. And it all, it all depends on what interpretation the person has of the rocks and what's in the rocks. And so you, 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 you climb down that ball of yarn and you have a wide variety of opinion. And let me tell you, this whole thing of origins, that's what it is. It's a big ball of yarn. When you really start to understand it, you're dealing with something very, very complex. I always approach the subject with a great deal of humility. But essentially, what's being taught is that we are the product of time, lots of time, and pure chance. Pure, random chance, the likes of which the odds of the 649 lottery or the Powerball even would not even compare. And you have to hit that chance every single time to get to where we are now in terms of the incredible diversity that we see just on planet Earth itself. It really is like winning the lottery. And that is the foundation in a general sense of the theory. Now, I know that most of you in this room, you say, oh, ridiculous, blah, 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 but at least you understand in a general sense what is being described there and what is being talked about there. I want to show you another clip now, and this is from a different school of thought and a different way of looking at origins, and there's two guys you're going to meet here. Uh, they're both nerdy guys, all right? You're going to look, and the video's a bit old. I think it's from the mid-90s, so you're going to laugh a little bit at the way they're dressed and all that, uh, but these guys are, are uh, proponents of a view that because of all of the crazy diversity that we see in biology in particular, in microbiology in particular, they would argue there is no chance, not even by the, by the crazy odds of the, of the lottery, there is no chance that even the simplest of cells could have come about by time and by chance. And they argue that there is a, a mind behind the diversity that we see in the cosmos. And they would look at the smallest, smallest things. These are microbiologists and, and lecturers and professors and writers and these type of guys. And they look in the small, small, small stuff. 
And they would say the more that we learn about it, the more that we're convinced, at least in their view, that there's no way that this could come about by time and chance. This is Dean Kenyon and Stephen Meyer, and it's going to start with Dean Kenyon. This is a longer clip, but I want you to grab some of it as much as you can. Some of you have never, ever heard this in your life. It is literally going to blow some of your minds if you can understand what they are saying. And these guys are not even necessarily Christian people. They're not arguing necessarily for the Bible and for the God of the Bible as the creator. All they're arguing is that the complexity and the design that we see must have come from an intelligent mind. This is what they argued, and Dean Kenyon had written a book in the 70s called Biological, uh, no, uh, Biochemical Predestination, where he argued that those amino acids in that primordial soup billions of years ago had an affinity toward one another, and they could combine with one another without the help of DNA. And he was challenged by a student of his, and it took him in a completely different direction. I want you to watch and see and understand, even if you can only get bits and pieces of this, uh, uh, the view that he has and that his, uh, his colleague Stephen Meyer has. If you go ahead and roll that video, Justin. During that whole period of time that my doubts about certain aspects of the evolutionary account became apparent, when coming into contact with a powerful counter-argument given to me by one of my students, and I could not refute that counter-argument. Kenyon was challenged to explain how the first proteins could have been assembled without the help of genetic instructions. In living cells today, chains of amino acids are not formed directly by forces of attraction between their parts, the scenario Kenyon envisioned on the early Earth. Instead, another large molecule within the cell stores instructions for sequencing the amino acids in proteins. It is called DNA. Initially, Kenyon believed that proteins could have formed directly from amino acids without any DNA assembly instructions. And, and that's why so many scientists were excited about his theory. But the more he and others learned about the properties of amino acids and proteins, the more he began to doubt that proteins could self-assemble without DNA. In DNA, Kenyon encountered a molecule with a property he could not explain through natural processes. For locked securely within its double helix structure is a wealth of information in the form of precisely sequenced chemicals that scientists represent with the letters A, C, T, and G. In a written language, information is communicated by a precise arrangement of letters. In the same way, the instructions necessary to assemble amino acids into proteins are conveyed by the sequences of chemicals arranged along the spine of the DNA. This chemical code has been called the language of life, and it is the most densely packed and elaborately detailed assembly of information in the known universe. Like other scientists working on the origin of life, Kenyon realized he had two choices. Either he had to explain where these genetic assembly instructions came from, or he had to explain how proteins could have arisen directly from amino acids without DNA in the primordial oceans. And in the end, he realized he could do neither.
it's an enormous problem how you could get together in one tiny submicroscopic volume of the primitive ocean all of the uh, hundreds of different molecular components you would need in order for a self-replicating cycle to be established. And so my doubts about whether amino acids could order themselves into uh, meaningful biological sequences on their own without pre-existing genetic material being present just reached, uh, I guess for me, the intellectual breaking point uh, sometime near the, the end of the decade of the 70s. As Kenyon reevaluated his theory, new biochemical discoveries further weakened his conviction that amino acids could have organized themselves into proteins. The more I conducted my own studies, including a period of time at NASA Ames Research uh, Center, uh, the more it became apparent that there were multiple difficulties with uh, the chemical evolution account. And uh, further uh, experimental work showed that amino acids do not have the ability to order themselves uh, into any biologically meaningful sequences. Faced with mounting difficulties in his own theory and a growing body of scientific data about the importance of DNA, Kenyon was forced to confront the absolute necessity of genetic information. The more I thought about the alternative that was being presented in the criticism and the enormous problem that all of us who worked on this field had neglected to address, the problem of the origin of genetic information itself, then I really had to reassess my whole uh, position regarding, uh, regarding origins. For Dean Kenyon, a new question became the focus of his search for life's origin. What was the source of the biological information in DNA? If one could get at the origin of the uh, messages, the encoded messages within the living machinery, then you would really be on to something far more intellectually satisfying than this chemical evolution theory. Yet Kenyon realized that he faced a narrowing set of options. By the 1970s, most researchers had rejected the idea that the information necessary to build the first cell originated by chance alone. To understand why, consider the difficulty of generating just two lines of Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, by dropping Scrabble letters onto a tabletop. then considered that the specific genetic instructions required to build the proteins in even the simplest one-celled organism would fill hundreds of pages of printed text. Of course, a serious origin of life biologists did not believe that life had arisen by chance alone. Instead, they envisioned natural selection acting on random variations among chemicals to produce the first life. But there was a problem with this proposal. By definition, natural selection could not have functioned before the existence of the first living cell. For it can only act upon organisms capable of replicating themselves, cells equipped with DNA that pass on their genetic changes to future generations. Without DNA, there is no self-replication. But without self-replication, there is no natural selection. So you can't use natural selection to explain the origin of DNA without assuming the existence of the very thing you're trying to explain. 
chance, natural selection, and his own theory of self-organization had all failed to explain the origin of genetic information. Now Kenyon saw only one alternative. We have not the slightest chance of a chemical evolutionary origin for even the simplest uh, of cells. So the concept of the intelligent design of life was immensely attractive to me and made a great deal of sense as it very closely matched the multiple discoveries in molecular biology. In the years since Kenyon's rejection of chemical evolution, science has revealed the details of an entire system of information processing that bears the hallmarks of intelligent design. With computer animation, we can enter the cell to view this remarkable system at work. After entering the heart of the cell, we see the tightly wound strands of DNA, storehouses for the instructions necessary to build every protein in an organism. In a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds a section of the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions needed to assemble a specific protein molecule. Another machine then copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. When transcription is complete, the slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex, the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand is directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. After attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell and then linked into chains often hundreds of units long. Their sequential arrangement determines the type of protein manufactured. When the chain is finished, it is moved from the ribosome to a barrel-shaped machine that helps fold it into the precise shape critical to its function. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is then released and shepherded by another molecular machine to the exact location where it is needed. This is absolutely mind-boggling to perceive at this scale of size such a uh, finely tuned 
um, apparatus, a device that's, uh, that bears the marks of intelligent design and manufacture. And we have the details of an immensely complex molecular realm of genetic information processing. And it's exactly this new realm of molecular genetics where we see the most compelling evidence of design on the Earth. Not science fiction. <laughs> Happening in the trillions of cells in your body at this moment. That's what's going on, that process of transcription. I remember when I was in grade eight biology, uh, not a Christian at all, uh, Jewish only by ethnicity, and a substitute teacher with a chalk, chalkboard explained that process to me. And I was uh, 13, 14 years old. At that time, you know, the first home computers came out. The first one. And I had a whole little home computer at my house there. And so I was a tinkerer and, you know, starting to learn how things work. And I sat there in grade 8 biology, not a Christian at all, and looked at that process and said, that's a machine. That is a well-ordered factory. There has to be some sort of intelligence behind that. That can't just have come about by time and chance. Not that small, not trillions of times over happening in your body even as you speak. You don't even have to know anything about it. If you're healthy, that's what's going on in the cells of your body. Remarkable, it's not Star Wars, it's not science fiction. That's what's happening in your body. Some of the things that those gentlemen said, uh, Stephen Meyer said this, and I put the quote on the screen, without DNA, there is no self-replication. But without self-replication, there's no natural selection. It can't select what's not there. So you can't use natural selection to explain the origin of DNA without assuming the existence of the very thing you're trying to explain. So you run into this circular argument, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. It's, it's a bit like thinking of it this way. Uh, those of you who, who have children in the room, you will know, and even those of you who don't have children in the room, you will know that sexual reproduction is a very, very complicated thing. Now, you don't have to know anything about it, do you? <laughs> but it's a very, very complicated thing. Do you realize that that process of sexual reproduction in, in the human species had to have evolved? Well, how is it supposed to have evolved if it's the process that natural selection uses to get you and me? You run into this circular argument because the thing is so unbelievably complex that you run to the point where you say, well, this is absurdity to say that this came about by winning the lottery hundreds and hundreds and millions of times over. And uh, uh, Kenyon said this, we have not the slightest chance of a chemical evolutionary origin for even the simplest of cells. So the concept of intelligent design, he says, was immensely attractive to me and made a great deal of sense as it was very closely, it very much matched the multiple discoveries of molecular biology. Ultimately, when it comes to where did you come from, you must exercise faith and you must exercise speculation. 
It does not matter which theory you adhere to, you, you hold to evolutionary thought, well, that's fine, but you must speculate and you must play the lottery millions and millions of times over to get to where we are today. Uh, even, even us today who, who profess to be believers and say, no, uh, we didn't come about by time and chance, we came about by the special creation of God, you must exercise speculation and you must exercise faith for this. And we need to be honest in that. Uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that requires faith. You have to believe that. You can't go back there and look at that. Listen, I know every single theory of origins. I spent years reading it, years studying it. I studied science as a young person and in my teen years and young adult years and all of that. I know every creationist theory. I know every evolutionist theory. All of them, you have to exercise faith. I happen to be a, one of those fruitcakes. I'm a young earth creationist, okay? So I believe that God created the cosmos in six 24-hour days. So I have to exercise a great deal of faith and speculation with this uh, because I have to deal with things like the speed of light. What do you do with the speed of light if the earth is young? If it's thousands of years old, what are you, crazy? What is the speed of light? Oh, what do you do with that? Because you can look into distant starlight. That requires, a, that's a huge problem for a young earth creationist. I have to deal with the fact that there's day and night in the creation account before the sun's even created. And that light was created before sun was created. How could light be created before sun? What kind of light is that? The Bible doesn't say. I have to speculate. And oftentimes, this is why I tell you we need to approach this subject with a great deal of humility. Because when we start saying, well, this one's right, this one's wrong, this one's a compromise, or this one isn't. Listen, we all have to exercise faith and speculation when it comes to these things. In my view, what the Bible postulates from the very first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is where we need to make our stand. And we have to say, hey... You, you want to be, if you say that it was a progressive creationist theory, you say it's a day age theory, you say it's a gap theory, all the, fine. But in the end, did God do it or did he not? Is there, is there one behind this, as the Bible says, or is there not? And regardless of wherever you fall, trust me, friends, you must exercise faith wherever you fall. The, the professing atheist has to exercise faith if they're going to believe uh, the whole evolutionary view. They have to exercise faith just like we do. Uh, in, the, in the group that you're going to, some of you will participate in, you will see a strict young earth creationist theory taught there. Uh, but let me tell you, friends, uh, I know people who are not young earth creationists and they still believe that God created the heavens and the earth. They have a different way of going about it, of course. I may disagree with them on some issues, but you know something? They're just as Christian as I am. Okay, and I've got we've got no place to say, well, no, no, no. When a, when a person dies and goes to heaven to be with Jesus, he's going to ask them a question at the door. Were you a 24 hour creationist or were you a day ager? Because we don't let day-agers here, all right? <laughs> this is not what Jesus is looking for when you die and you go to be with him. The real question is, well, did God create or didn't he? Because if, if we don't need that, if we don't need the idea that God created the heavens and the earth, then we don't really need salvation either. 
The whole thing is foundational. Regardless of where you fall, you're exercising faith. Last point uh, before we close, and I think I'll probably take some questions tonight because we have the time. This leads to the, to the next question about the miraculous. And, and it's a challenge to belief. And we say, well, how can there be miracles? Aren't miracles disproved by science? Well, if you believe that God created you believe in like the greatest miracle of all. You, we need to understand as, a, as a, a foundational principle, we look at the miracles in the Bible. In no way, shape, or form is the Bible trying to say that the miraculous that it alleges took place contradicts the, the, the basic rules of science and the operational views of the universe. In no way is the Bible trying to say this. When we see the, the seas part in the story of the Exodus, when we see Jonah in the belly of a whale, when we see Jesus risen from the dead, when we see the blind see and the deaf hear and all of these things, in no way, shape, or form is the Bible trying to say that this opposes the laws of nature. What the Bible is saying is that what is going on and what happens in the realm of a human experience cannot always be explained by science. It can't. And you all could testify you have had things that have happened to you and experiences that have happened to you where you say this has no possible natural explanation. I don't know how to explain the experience, but science simply cannot explain it. It's beyond the realm of explanation. I remember the first time I saw a real-life uh, uh, demonic experience. The very first time that I saw it. And the very first time I participated in dealing with a real-life supernatural demonic experience in a person. I have never forgotten it. I have never seen anything like it to this day. I saw that person do things that were impossible. I saw that person say things that he never could have known. I, saw, I heard things that, that he said that he never could have said as a human. It was the strangest, most bizarre thing that I had ever seen. And it could not be explained by science. It doesn't mean that it contradicted it. It just meant science couldn't go there and science couldn't explain it. And this is really what the Bible is trying to say. Great example in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul is speaking about the resurrection. And when he's speaking about the body and the resurrection body that every believer in Jesus will inherit one day. And what does he say there? He says, the mortal must inherit the immortal. And the perishable must inherit the imperishable, i.e., you're going beyond the natural order of things. It's an entirely different setup. It's an entirely different existence. It's supernatural. And if you start by believing that God is the creator... Friends, you believe the greatest miracle of all. You should have no trouble. If you really accept that God is the creator, then you should have no trouble with, you know, Jonah and the whale and whatever. Basic application for you. Because for some of you, you say, man, I don't even understand half of those crazy videos. They were really cool looking, but I don't even understand half of what was on that screen. It almost put me to sleep. Listen, basic application. You are not the product 
of time and chance. You are not the product of time and chance. You are the product of a divine mind who specially created you in his image. That God specially created humanity in his image. It's not by time and chance. It's not by winning the lottery that you're here. It's not by a primordial soup that was struck by lightning that you're here. You're here because God put you here. You're here created in his image with a special purpose, with a special plan for each, every individual. God has created that person in his image. He has put his thumbprint on the heart of every human being that comes out of the womb. This is a great application for you. Because if you live your life thinking that you are purely the product of time and chance, that's going to change the way that you live. It's going to change your morals. It's going to change your ethics. It's going to change your sense of purpose. It will alter that. And you will live accordingly. But if you live according to the idea that, hey, I'm not here by accident. I'm here because God wants me here. That'll give you plan and purpose and meaning for your life. Point number two, remember that God is not purely a natural God. He doesn't only operate in nature. He operates inside of nature. He operates outside of nature. He operates in a supernatural way at times. And he is capable of doing things that cannot be explained by nature. He is capable of the miraculous. He is capable of things like physical healing today. He is capable of reversing circumstances that are happening in a way that cannot be explained. There will be no explanation for it. So don't put God in a little box and think that he can only work one way. God can work any way that he wants to work. Natural, supernatural, and everything in between. If you only remember two things tonight, you remember those two things. All right, so all of, uh, I'm done. I'm very curious because trying to read the looks on your faces tonight, I mean, I've got some interesting, interesting feedback that I'm sure is going to come, but I want to see if anybody's bold enough to raise any question based on what you've seen or what we've talked about tonight. Go ahead and raise your hand and let me know. Going once. Yes, Joanne, the brave soul at the front. Did he what? Did who make those creatures? Good question. Yeah, those creatures with the big noses, the really funny looking, I don't know, dinosaurs or whatever. This is an idea that uh, Stephen Hawking, you know, he's, he's basically saying, well, maybe on another planet, a creature could look like that. If it evolved, maybe it would look something like that. That he's just making, he's just kind of postulating as to if there's life on another planet, maybe it could look like that based on the whole idea of evolutionary thought. So that's not something, that crazy thing that we saw isn't something you see on planet Earth or anything. He's just saying maybe that exists on some planet somewhere uh, if, if, it, if it evolved the same way that things have evolved on Earth. That's all he's saying. Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, if, we, if we look at something like the book of Genesis and we talk about, about Earth, we do see that, that humanity is like the culmination of God's creative work. 
So he, he says, as the, at, at the end of his creative process, he says that he created man and woman, women in his image. So, and it, 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 he doesn't say this about anything else in creation. He doesn't start with creating humanity, he ends with it in the account, as if to imply that the most significant of God's creation is the ones that he has created in his image, i.e. you and me. So I personally think that that's true. Uh, I, I think that, that we are created in the image of God and nothing else is. So and then this is in the creation account in Genesis, we see this kind of presented as the culmination of the work of God, the creative work of God. Regardless of if a person says it's 24-hour days or ages or whatever, you still see that the culmination of creation is humanity. That's a great question you're asking. Yeah. See how easy it is to ask a question? Yeah. Anybody else? I've pricked your brain a little bit. Yes, Jonathan at the back. Yeah, his question is interesting. He's saying if we're made in God's image, doesn't that give us flexibility? If flexibility, what do you mean by that? Yes. Yeah, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, I mean, it's the Bible that, that, that says this. So if we look into the pages of the Bible, we try and explore this idea of being created in his image. Uh, we see several things. We see God is, a, for example, a God of community. Um, so he says in Genesis, let us make man in our image. Uh, and the thought there, Joe's Abraham might go over this in his group, you, that, that could very well be the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit speaking. Let us make man in our image. Uh, and what does that teach? Well, uh, God is, a, he's, he exists in community. And so, uh, therefore, man probably has a hunger for community and a hunger for relationships because that's, that's who God is. And what do we see? We see humanity thrives when, it, when people are in healthy relationships. So that's probably a part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Uh, another part of it would be that, again, the teaching of the Bible is that man has an invisible part to him, uh, a soul, a spirit. And the soul spirit extends even beyond physical death. It's the intellect, the emotions, the will uh, the, the person that we can't measure, again, with science or with, it's not physical, but the Bible teaches that the person lives even after physical death. Well, that would be another idea of being created in the image of God. Um, we see that God is a creator, that he loves to create. Well, look at man today. We love to create things. I mean, you'll look out on the, on the horizon there. You probably can't see it now. But you can look at the Champlain Bridge being created by man, uh, which happens to be a rather crude copy of things that we see in nature. Uh, we copy things that we see in nature all the time. But you can look at the Champlain Bridge, and we're creating now. We love to create stuff. 
Uh, you can look and see the, the, the highest standing angled tower in the world is the, the leaning tower of the Olympic Stadium, okay? Because man loves to create. Sometimes he does weird things, you know, the Olympic Stadium. I'm not so sure that was a good idea. Uh, but man loves to create. Well, why? Well, because God loves to create, you see. So this is, this is what it means in principle to be created in the image of God. Something of the stamp of God is on the heart and mind and soul of humanity.